Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. American Apparel doesn't keep us safe, Alex. It only pushes the envelope. Welcome to Radio Motherwood. My name is Jason Kebler, and I'm watching Brian Merchant try to cut a tweet down to 140 characters. He's been doing this now for 35 seven minutes, minutes and 38 <laughs> seconds. It's hard. And I want to start. I want to start the there. podcast. It's hard. <laughs> it was a humorous idea, though. In that tweet, wasn't it, Jason? You saw it and you chuckled. Yeah, it was really funny. Did you manage to edit? Yourself? I haven't. I got cut off because I got called out. All right, live would, podcast. Would you like us to wait for you to to bring you? it down? Yeah. Why don't we <laughs> live edit Brian's tweet? <laughs> Bring it over no, here. What do you no, have? I'm what good. do you have? Okay. Okay. So, Motherboard has decided to kill comments. We uh, just decided that it wasn't worth tending this garden, uh, this wretched and terrible and only very occasionally enlightening and funny garden that is the comment section because everybody knows 98% of all comments are filth. So, we just decided to pull the plug and give folks an alternate way of getting in touch with us send an old-fashioned letter to the editor tweet at us facebook it's not hard uh instead of just having somebody dedicate hours of every day to making sure that people aren't dropping n-bombs in the comment section you know yeah often comment sections get brigaded uh, i guess is the technical term from you know reddit if we run anything that you know has maybe like a social angle like misogyny or hey look instagram is deleting naked pictures of women again uh you know you get people such as gamergate coming in and just like destroying the comment section and we don't really have the bandwidth right now to uh kind of delete all of those especially when they're coming in you know 24 hours a day um so as our editor-in-chief derek mead said uh our time is kind of better spent reporting and uh you know we very much value our readers and, you know, what they have to say about our articles. But, you know, it's much the barrier to entry is much lower on a comment than it is on an email. Um, so I guess we are going to take some emails and then publish them like letters to the editor style. Right. Like the idea isn't is is mostly just that we've seen by experience, like through the years that the things that really tend to make us think that like that we will pass around in our you know in our hip chat or on an inner office listserv or something is an email or a smart tweet or even 
less less commonly like a facebook comment or something which uh but so the the media is is still there the platforms are still there it's just the comment section itself has never been particularly attractive i mean i we have a few commenters that i look forward to hearing from and i will be sorry to uh, lose their voices, of course, but I still hope that they write in. And then we have this much more polished thing. We say, like, uh, this is an actual idea that somebody took a second to to write up, to maybe edit briefly and send in, and then we can feature it in a way that will give it more attention than it would have gotten on a comment section. Right. Yeah. I mean, we are a pretty open platform in terms of we run reader stories. If you know you guys write something and we like it, we will publish it on our website. Yeah. Um, and a lot of places don't do that. Um, and yeah, the comments section, there, I, I'll be totally honest, there have been comments that have been really good and insightful, but uh, they're pretty rare. And I see a lot more emails and I get a lot of tweets that are like more considered than your average comment, I would say. Um, I, so I think that's the goal here. Yeah, I think there's an interesting thing there that, you know, if it's somebody's Twitter profile it's you know like we take a little care to make sure that the tweets that are preserved and logged there kind of like reflect our values and the quality of things that we want to you know use to describe not only whatever we're reading but ourselves too so when we have like uh the option the opportunity to just like dump a thought turd in a comment section we like take it because there's no consequence we can divorce ourselves from that idea like you know log off of huffington post and never ever have to think about that comment again like closing off that option means that all of your thoughts you have to own you know whether it's email or you know a twitter or facebook or whatever right and that said we have uh we use discus for comments which is not entirely anonymous but is pseudonym pseudonymous god i can't say that word either there's so many words i can't say um so yeah you have people just kind of you know throwing trash up there and you don't know who they are yeah. uh and we also get a lot of spam which um you know is not ideal we've tried to get rid of the spam but it's kind of not a good look when you've spent you know a lot of time writing an article and four of the comments are spam so yeah. Um, that is not necessarily like our devs fault. It is, you know, Discus is a widely used commenting platform and it has been hacked or otherwise, you know, uh, spammers have figured out how to abuse it and we are kind of helpless in stopping it. So, uh, you know, now we'll have a little bit uh, better looking site and hopefully better reader engagement, I would think. Yeah, it's an interesting game. I mean, there's been a lot of backlash already. We announced this like, what, 20 minutes ago and people are already screaming at us for doing this uh, from across the spectrum. It's been really interesting to see, yeah. actually. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting... This is Alex Pasternak. I think this is one of the most interesting things about a decision like this, is just seeing how it riles people up and gets them talking about journalism and, and like the media platforms that are used to to comment on it, to talk about it. I mean, my feeling is that we just don't have something good enough at the moment that would be there would be like the platform for comments in a way that does the things that we want, like our, our reader community to be able to do around articles. And I think like in the future, maybe something else will come along. Right. It's not to say that like, this is a permanent solution. This is like um, part of an experiment in terms of figuring out how to engage readers better and how to manage our website. Yeah. I mean, do you think uh, when you say we don't have something better, do you mean, motherboard or like online media in general i think in general i mean 
I think there's a lot. I think there's so much fragmentation now in terms of where comments end up going, and I think there's a benefit to that to having conversations within certain communities like Twitter, or Reddit. Right. But I also think that maybe maybe there's another solution to this technologically that would make sense. Yeah, I think there are a few sites that have uh, really good comment sections, and that's because they start out as like these very small like niche type sites almost. like which ones like i think gawker and deadspin have really good sure. commenters um and they started out like gawker was a very niche like journalism media site um and you know their readership grew with it and deadspin similarly uh and the commenters themselves are kind of the people who like kept uh the riffraff out i guess um and you kind of see that today even though some of their comments are garbage as well but anyways, we have uh, Derek Mead, our editor-in-chief here, who is probably has something much more eloquent to say about what we just did. Derek, <laughs> I promise we didn't say anything terrible, but uh, you are the man who chopped off the head of the comment That's beast, a, right? I think that it was more or less, uh, there's at least a majority of people that are interested in it, because we'd all talked about this a lot. I mean, I think... We have been more or less talking about this sometimes seriously and sometimes we're not for a very, very long time. Um, and also just how do we do make comments better or what should we do about that? remember talking with you, Alex, many times about that. And we also one time switched comment sections and that was supposed to make things better and it made it worse and then everything. I think at the end of the day, I uh, am having a lot of people um, having many thoughts on Twitter, which is kind of funny um, that they're sharing that there uh, while also saying that comments are the future, um, because clearly uh, that's a sign. But I think what a lot of people right, are saying... Not only that, but saying that we're killing discussion yeah. while we're having the best discussion about this we've had on, on right. Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I love discussion. Um, I uh, personally um, could be totally wrong in my feelings on this. Um, I don't know if anyone vehemently degrees at mother, disagrees with Motherboard at this, but I also welcome that. I think the main thing is I look at comments as a medium that doesn't work very well um, because it simply just devalues what everyone says. By having anyone who can come in there at any time and say something insane or worthless or garbage or fun or awesome or post a picture of a cat um, and have that literally show up at the same time with no other outlook as someone else who spent an hour writing something just means that everyone, no one wants to put any effort and becomes into a lowest common denominator. Um, the way to go against that, I mean, could be spending a lot of time building up a community um, or keeping your blog personal and having just your friends and other people who like you comment on it. Or maybe do what the New York Times has done and spend an enormous amount of money on developing tools to try to promote the good comments that they do get. Guys. <laughs> hey, phone calls. Yeah. That's a kind of comment. Uh, yeah, that's a reader. Yeah. Please. I, I do accept phone. Uh, yeah, I also happily talk to him on the phone. Okay. But the point is that uh, I definitely want to hear what anyone thinks. I think it's really important when people tell us that we're doing things wrong or when we're doing something that was incorrect because that's when we get good feedback and get better. But I don't think that we're going to get that consistently in the way that we want from having someone post at the bottom of an article. Yeah, and I think, like you said, it's this isn't to say that like comments categorically are bad or that comment systems are always going to be bad. It's that like this is not working for us in the way that we want it to work, and we have to make choices about how we run the website. And sometimes, you know, it's like it's a cost-benefit analysis. It's not to say that all comments are, are worthless. It's just to say that, like this is not the right platform and maybe we'll find something better in the future. Yeah, exactly. I think that, uh, yeah, it's not, comments aren't worthless um, when you're talking about someone saying something to react to your story. Every reaction right. is always good. 
um, until they're really, really bad. But, you know, anyone has a passionate thought to share on something or cares about something or knows about it, then I definitely want to hear about it. And we all do. Um, but when you just don't have something that's inspiring the conversation that you want, then we're going to try something new. And that definitely, yeah, it doesn't mean that this is what everyone, every side on the internet should do. It doesn't mean that this is a perfect solution for every person out there. And I think it's kind of insane how people are so passionate about this specific issue when there's so many problems in media right now. I think for us, it's definitely the best thing for us to do right now. And we'll see how it goes and see if someone recreates comments to make them work better in the future, then shit, let's turn it back on. I don't care, but it's good yeah. for now. How do you feel about the people on Twitter who have said uh, this shows we don't want to invest in our community or, or something like that? I mean, you like call people on Fridays if, uh, you know, they want to talk about any article and that sort of thing. Uh, do you think that it's do you think they have a point or no? Uh, no, I think that they're just being, uh, they, it's, it's a tired trope to, to yell about. I think it's also a tired trope to talk about how, uh, comments are entirely worthless and everything. There's just so many blanket statements on Twitter that are insane that piss me off and, or just are wacky that I can't deal with. Um, the point is for us, I only want to hear more from our readers and I want to hear insightful things from them. That's also why we're doing a podcast right now. That's why we do video. That's why I do every single thing that we do across all of our platforms is try to make sure that we can um, hear what people have to say and give them avenues to connect with what we're doing. So I don't think that it's like lazy. And yes, uh, if anyone on this podcast wants to call me to call them, uh, I will call you uh, whenever you, as soon as you DM me your phone number. I'm Just to Twitter. clarify, in this yeah. age, he means call you with his cell phone, yeah. with a <laughs> tapping numbers to, to listen to your comments yeah. with your voice. Actually, he will do it. Call his bluff. I'm actually going to make a tweet about that right now. <laughs> uh, I mean, part of the issue, I think, as you've said, is that that sometimes comment threads, comment platforms can be like a cesspool and deter people from wanting to participate. And and that's like, you know, something we have to take into account, too, when we think about engaging a community. Well, yeah. I mean, if we often, if we write about some sort of gender issue, you have, a, you know, thousands of people come in and say very mean things and they're not adding anything to the conversation they're just saying hateful mean things yeah. and then if you have someone who actually wants to comment on that story they basically can't because they will be drowned out and we have no real way of moderating all of those because you know there's thousands there at times there can be thousands of people just yeah. like spewing hate at once i also think it's interesting to think about like some of the backlash from like the community moderators we've gotten. And it, it kind of raises the issue that, you know, this is a job that is a very real job. There are, you know, how many hundreds of websites and hundreds of, you know, social media producers and community managers and people whose job it is to sort through this stuff and make sure that communities are good. So there, of course, there are good people that are going to be protective about, you know, this, this job, because it's an industry now, it's an actual, you know, community management is a very real digital industry. It's new ish, but it's not that young. There are people who've been doing it for years who, uh, it's, who obviously get attached to it and because it can be a very good thing. And I think it's interesting to see some of the bash backlash from, from those folks, uh, on this industry, that's not even a decade old who, you know, have good reason to be concerned about, you know, the comments disappearing. Sure. But also I think, you know, this is part of trying to make that conversation better in a sense. Like mm -hmm. think about, it's like the, the, the platform, the technology that you're using for the comments isn't, is, is crucial to thinking about how we have these conversations. And so, I mean, we should have we should have those people in this conversation right now. Yeah, I get the feeling that a lot of people who have been commenting on the fact that this doesn't value our 
uh, commenters it's just to say comment like 50,000 times in the thing but I feel like they actually didn't which is kind of ironic I feel like they didn't actually read what I wrote which is that when I was a youngster writing letters to the editor I'd always be like holy shit someone's gonna read this I should definitely put effort into it right. now who knows if they were because hey they have magazines they might all have been partying and drinking champagne all the time but um, regardless I thought to myself if I'm gonna write to someone how do I write to them to actually convince them that my argument is true or that my jokes are funny or whatever versus just saying well they may someone's gonna see it so I might as well just whatever the fuck I right. want Right, you know? Hitler. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, think about it this way: you're not going to get. We're not. People aren't going to email us spam comments and say "click here" because they know that that's not going to get past what we're looking for, right? Yeah. But on spam, you're or for on comments in a comment section, you're just hoping anyone who does a random drive by is going to see that there's no effort or target to who you're writing to. I think there's some context that's important here is something that Jason was talking about, which is that some websites have really. Um, vibrant comment sections perhaps because they've been doing it for a long time or they've they've been thinking about that community from the very beginning in, in designing a system. Yeah, I don't know how vibrant necessarily they are at the end of the day though because I think often it's the same people commenting over and over on every single article and you know any sort of newcomer may be kind of shamed out or pushed out. I have no idea. I mean, I'm not really positive how it goes but i know you see the same are you a kinja user i'm not no okay. no derek used to anyone a kinja um, user here yeah i've made many friends on comment sections on uh on deadspin actually oh wow like real life friends you met one of them eric peacock oh yeah. shout out to him from uh from cleveland wow yeah so the power of the, the yeah, comment so, community yeah it's important yeah, so I think it's it's literally I've, I just can't handle all these blanket statements that people make about this. I think it's the best move for us because we have so many other avenues and opportunities to talk to people that I don't like having just a broken system sit there unless we can try something new. And it doesn't mean that it has to be permanent. It doesn't mean it's the best solution for everyone. And there's really no reason to be entirely dogmatic about this. All right, let's just see how it works, huh? Let's stop talking about ourselves here and move on to something else. Comments okay? about comments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm gonna go talk about the sandwich I was eating before I came into this. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you should you want to talk about the Martian, somewhere. Derek, or do you have things to do? Uh, it's been sitting. Uh, the book has been sitting on my bookshelf for a long time, and I've yet to read it. So um, I will leave for spoilers. But I hear he goes to Mars. Spoiler alert! Yes, can he neither does. can. Whoa, whoa. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know what? We should have spoiler alerted that for everybody out there. Just now, going forward. Is spoilers. this movie the product of the like? end of event horizon where they actually went into the black hole and the hell portal out. yeah and then yeah. they came out the other end and yeah. they are matt damon yeah they should have thought about that tie-in okay are, are there already conspiracy theorists who think that he didn't actually go to mars in the movie fake, the, all fake the mars landing mars yeah, yeah it's just in like the new mexican desert yeah. that's the sequel <laughs> bye derek <laughs> all right yeah so that was a quite a long intro but the meat of this podcast is going to be about the martian the new film and book well, old book, new film. Uh, film stars Matt Damon, Jessica Chastain, was directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, was based on a book by Martin Weir, who is a son of a physicist, I believe, but is not one himself. I'm not sure. And in any case, the movie is out, and it was very good. Um, I wrote in my article about it last week that I feel like there's basically no way that they could have possibly fucked this up it was like, you know, the book felt like it was made for a movie. Uh, Ridley Scott is obviously a legendary sci-fi director. Matt Damon's a good actor. Like, you have all the points there. Um, and they pulled it off. But what do you guys think? I mean, I think that 
This is Alex. I think that raises the the question that I thought about a lot when I saw the movie, which is how is a mission to Mars sort of like making a movie? Like what are the ways that everything needs to come together um, so that your outcome is, you know, successful? And there's so many things that can go wrong. It's in the probably process. a lot harder to go to Mars. Yeah, a little bit harder. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, but just in terms of like, yeah, like the this sort of storm of things that makes this movie what it is, it's it's hard to imagine that it could have been boring or, or bad. Um, but yeah, I think like... The, the, I don't know, guys. I So I kind of disagree because both... There's been a lot of bad sci-fi in the last few years. Right. And a lot of good sci-fi. Totally. And some of it was... Some of that bad stuff was produced by Ridley Scott. I know there are, like, pro-Prometheus people out there, but that movie was, like, a mess. It was basically, you know, like, it should have been... It's a similar thing. You land on a planet, there's a mystery and aliens, and he botched that one up pretty good, in my opinion. So, for me, like, going into this, I didn't share the sense of, like, this, this, like, positive fatalism that it had to be good. I was actually really nervous that it was going to be, like, crappy well no me too me too that's the thing i thought like oh you have all these ingredients you have like big stakes this could be a really cool movie there was a lot of hype about it i think um and about how it was the more sciencey of the space movies Mm -hmm. that we've had recently um so and then of course like it comes out the same week that nasa announces finding liquid water on Mars. And, you know, that didn't mess up the film too much, although I guess an hour of the film would would have been um, moot if if he had had liquid water uh, <laughs> available <laughs> like to him. It, yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, I, that's the thing. Like, this this could have gone wrong. And, and the movie, to me, in a lot of ways, is also just about how these enormous projects that we, that we undertake as humanity... Uh, often go wrong and then what happens and um yeah you know there's a lot there's a lot there obviously i think there's a lot to talk about sort of like what this what this movie says about the future of going to mars does this look like a mars mission would look like you know in your mind you say 30 years down the line like is this what a nasa mars mission is going to be I mean, to me, that's really hard to say because, like, from the beginning, yeah, maybe the first 20 minutes when they're there and they kind of have realistic-seeming parameters for what they're going to have to accomplish and they have their their hab, they've got that sort of inflatable large habitat that they could stay in that's both precarious and ingenious and they have, you know, they're collecting dirt samples and nothing seems too crazy. I'd say everything after, like, the... 45 minute mark is veers wildly into the terrain of like <laughs> we're, that would never happen things that are just so far-fetched to me that it i mean if more so the sort of the movie magic kind of like fantasy then that every, every single thing having to go right at the same time then than the technology being preposterous, right? Like, it just, to me, it's like, oh, you know, they, spoiler alert, they slingshot around Earth, the, you know, the Earthbound crew to keep their momentum going. China supplies a probe that they miraculously, 
connect with then he launches himself out of mars orbit with uh without a head without like a nose on his yeah, ship tarp, tarp covering the thing then they have to hurt all of these like miraculous things have to happen and it's like really fun and my read of the movie is that it's like it's actually fun because who cares like these things were all really thrilling, really engaging, and they inspire sort of a scientific mindset. Like, you know, like, we can solve these problems if we just put our mind to it. We can get ourselves out of a pinch, and we can use science to do it. It's like an empowering, sort of affirming ethos. Yeah, that... and kind of an unusual mood for uh, for Ridley Scott, right. for sure. That's exactly what I... So, like, all of the big sci-fi epics that we've had over the last few years with the exception of gravity which i actually think is the closest analog to the martian it are like loaded with philosophical uh ponderings and interstellar is like do we have to abandon earth like mm, like you have to it's all shot in this dour sort of existential you know mood affirming you know thickness of lens and grime and dust and you know, all the I feel like that's kind of Pr- Prometheus too. Yeah, it's all this stuff, and and the Martian is just like, well, we're on Mars, shit happened, let's fix it. Like, you know, well, Jeff Daniels yeah, to the rescue. It's kind of like the triumph of the human spirit, but like not much more than that. It's like, you know, what has to be done to survive, but there's no like larger question it's necessarily answering. Right. Like, I mean, he gets back, and then they continue on with the missions, which you know, had he died, maybe they wouldn't. Um, you know, we didn't get to see the inevitable like discussions in Congress where they're like, it's right. too expensive to save right. this guy. Like right. we can't, you know, that's yeah. what I mean. Like, exactly. What is this, yeah. what is this movie? Ha- like, what is this movie saying about the, the enterprise of human spaceflight? But as to the sort of like miraculous set of circumstances that leads to the leads to the, the happy conclusion, I think, um, which we all know is coming, obviously, like we all know that this, this is going to end happily. Um, despite Ridley Scott's proclivities. Um, and he didn't write this. Like This was written by Drew Goddard, who I actually spoke to briefly afterwards, um, and hopefully we can hear some of that on the podcast. Let's listen to that now, huh? All right, yeah, yeah. let's play it. We actually talked about how making movies is kind of like going, going to space. Hey, Drew, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks a lot for The Martian. Gosh. I, I wish I could claim all credit for it, but I cannot. Um, how how has the um, the reception been, and and what did you expect based on uh, on the work that you did going into it? So we, look, we knew the book was amazing, and but you know movies are alchemy, and there's so many things that need to go right to get a good movie on the screen, and and I I've, I've never seen anything like it on this project. Everything went right for us, and I, I think we're all sort of amazed and grateful at the final product for sure it strikes me that making a movie sort of a bit like launching a mission to mars did you did you see that parallel at all in terms of uh... i didn't see that parallel when i was working on it and then after you know i've watched the movie a lot now i was sitting in the last time in the test screening and i thought oh my god this is just uh, you know among other things a metaphor for filmmaking where you have the director trapped by himself on a planet trying to try to fulfill his dream and a whole bunch of other people desperately trying to help him. <laughs> and it worked. Yeah. And it, uh, it doesn't always work. I mean, how, how much of it, how much of it is about, um, is about luck and is about big risk taking. You mean 
uh, for filmmaking? Yeah, for making a movie like this in particular. I think, look, there's certainly a luck factor because you, you just there's so many things that can go wrong. You need things to break your way. And you do need some risk-taking. And it, but you need to be smart about it. That was one of the things that we did early with Fox and sat down and said, let's, let's look at this, you know, because this was not an easy decision for them to make. This was not based on, I mean, it, at the time it was an e-book. It's not like, uh, like most movies these days. They, they want, you know, some sort of intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Not that they didn't have a good book, but at the end of the day, it wasn't a bestseller at the time when we when they greenlit this thing, so it was uh, it, it required some faith. And, but we had a you know a, a very sort of smart decision. We try to approach these things from a, from a good place where we say you know what do you guys need to, so that you feel comfortable? What budget do you need? And Ridley's great about that sort of thing. And I think we all sort of went into it as, as it was a great partnership. You know, everyone everyone was doing what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how science works too, I guess, in terms of just collaboration and knowing how to how to work together as a team. Yeah, I think when it's working at its best, it's really uh, you know it becomes the, the sum of its parts for sure. How how do you um, know the the sort of banter among scientists so well? I mean, you really capture that nicely in the movie in a way that. Uh, feels authentic. It, actually, and it sort of reminded me of the lab scene in uh, the scenes in, in Cabin in the Woods too. Just this yeah, like, this funny. lab. It, it, it was one, a lot of that's in the book, and it's one of the things that attracted me to the project originally because I, I Andy captured scientists so well, or at least my you know my experience of what scientists sound like. I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is yeah. just a town of scientists. That's the whole reason the town exists is because there's a lab there. It's a, sort of a, a company town, and uh, and it, there was just a, there's just a way of talking, a way of uh, there's a sense of humor about it, and a sense of intelligence about it, but a sense of sort of casual camaraderie about it. And Andy captured all of those things in his book. And when I called him, the first time I called him, I was I was praising him that, and he said uh, he mentioned that he happened to work for Sandia Labs, which is the lab that oversaw Los Alamos. And there was a real sense of fate that we, we both sort of had a similar world experience. Uh, to draw upon, right? And so, are you are you a Goddard, as in as in the Goddard who founded rocket science? Yeah, Robert Goddard. My grandmother uh, contends that he's my great great I think great uncle. I don't know if we've ever confirmed that. That might just be my grandma uh, <laughs> uh, having wishful thinking. I need I really need to confirm that once and for all. But that would be a pretty um, big coincidence. <laughs> well, yeah, especially because the Goddards are you know the Goddards in, from New Mexico. There's not a lot of people in New Mexico in general. Right. So, um, <laughs> I think so, but I don't. I don't. I can't say it with enough conviction to confirm it. Sure. Uh, I have the same problem. I'm a Pasternak, and everyone's oh, always yeah. wondering if I'm related to Boris, which is a big uh, <laughs> shadow to fill. Um, so I was actually in New Mexico recently, shooting a little documentary for for Vice about um, uh, water issues, and we really? weren't we weren't too far away. Uh, we were actually we were in Alamogordo most of the sure. time. What was it like growing up in Los Alamos? And, and how did you end up, how did your family end up there? Well, my, I guess my family's always lived, you know, my grandparents all live in New Mexico, so we're sort of, uh, we, go, we go back in New Mexico. And okay. they, my parents grew up in Albuquerque, and my dad's a doctor. And, uh, you know, when it was time to uh, uh, look for a medical practice, they, they, they were hiring in Los Alamos, so I think they sort of ended up there. And they, they, they loved the town. It's, look, it's a great town. It's up in the mountains. We have our own ski area. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of a lovely place. But, you know, there's not a lot to do. So it's, 
as a teenager, I don't think it's coincidence that I have an active imagination because there wasn't a lot of stimulus actually happening in the town itself. I had to sort of look look in, look into books and movies to find it. Wow. So did you ever make it to the lab? Did you get to wander around there? Yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't really wander around the lab. It's a pretty high-security place. But, you know, you could go, you'd go take tours, and my friends, a lot of my friends' parents all work there. And, and so you, it, it's definitely an integral part of the town. When you, um, when you... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Go about writing something like this. What kind of preparation do you do? Do you, do you need to get inspired by talking to scientists and reading about the science or, or is that distracting? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, you, you sort of find the balance. Um, it can be distracting early. In this case, the book was so good that I sort of said, okay, first I just need to sit down and figure out what's going to make the best movie. Once I sort of had a structure, then I started reaching out. Because once you have a structure, you know, okay, I can work from this. I know what I need. And then I started talking to scientists, talking to Andy Weir, who's the author, who's uh, just a treasure trove of information himself, and then touring JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab, which is nearby here, and they were great. And uh, you just sort of expand outward from there. I loved, um, maybe, I guess it's in the book, but the, the steely-eyed missile man yeah. line, which, uh, <laughs> which is kind of like a nerdy NASA thing, right? It's the, high, right, it's the highest um, level of praise. Right, casual praise they can bestow on one another. Yeah, no, I love that. A, Did you when you great. when you heard about the um, the water discovery? Uh, you must have heard about it a little while ago. Did Did you have a sort of pang of regret, like, oh, if only we could have like incorporated this in? Was that ever discussed? No, it's funny. I I actually found about it on Monday, like the rest of the world. <laughs> I know Ridley said he knew about it, but. He didn't tell me. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but the truth is, I don't know that we would have done anything differently. I, I haven't done enough research into it to really understand or to think about what Mark Watney would do. But the truth is, he has water. You know, the trick in the book is that it's, he needs to generate a lot of water very quickly um, so that he can grow potatoes. So it's not a question of, uh, and, that's, and that's just one small plot point. So I don't know structurally if it would have changed everything, but... So what we would do is we'd sit down with the scientists and talk about it and see if we could come up with fun ways to use it. Do you think that, um, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about science communication in this country and, and the way that scientists are presented um, in the media. Do you, do you think about that, and, and do you think that there are, there are ways of telling stories about science that are valuable in ways that are just stupid? <laughs> Probably. Um, you know, I don't know that... I have any sort of grand, uh, intelligent uh, statement on it. I, I just know we try to make a good movie, you know, and that I, I actually grew up admiring and loving scientists, and I wanted to represent it. And, you know, I, I try not to think too much further past that. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Sort of like, this is what, this is my little corner of the world, and I, I just have to concentrate on making, the, writing the best movie I can, and, and hope, and I just trust that 
good things will come from that. When you're writing, do you ever talk? Do you like talk aloud to yourself as you're going? <laughs> I don't. I mean, I mutter. Yeah, I guess I do. I pace around a lot because I write outside and I write by hand. Uh-huh. So I'm usually just making notes and muttering to myself, and people think I'm nuts. What's <laughs> your uh, What's your practice like? Do you 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 do it out, outside all the time? Yeah, usually, unless it's like raining or hot or something like that. But I, mm-hmm. I, I try to be as far away from any sort of office feel as I can be because it. I you know I I, I found I like to trick my brain into thinking it's not working, and one of the ways to do that is to not be in an office and not be in a computer. And I, I sort of just pace around, sometimes it's in the park, sometimes it's in a coffee shop, sometimes it's just, it's just up and down the street, and I, and I make notes as I do it. tends to work the best for me. It's all by hand? It's all by hand. I do the dialogue by hand, and then I type it up at the end of the day. Oh, okay. And, and you try to stay away from the phone as well? I do, yeah. And I, that's the other. I try to stay away from the phone and the internet, you know, uh-huh. at least until I've gotten uh, some pages done for the day. Do you have a method for procrastinating? Oh, yeah. Name it. <laughs> you know, I think like all writers, you know, we are we are experts in the art of procrastination, and uh, yeah, and certainly I, I think I could be a, a world class talent if I applied myself. Are you watching a lot of television and movies most of the time, or do you do other stuff to procrastinate? Yeah, usually when I'm writing, I'm not. I'm usually sort of I try I, when I'm writing, I try to get the script done as fast as possible, and then in the in between times, I sort of make up for that by consuming uh, vigorously. Sure. I wonder, you, I mean, your your movies reflect like a whole sort of range of genres that that are sort of my my range too, and I I wonder how you see the um, the experience of going to the movies having changed since since you got into the business and maybe since you were since you were young. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I know we talk. There's a lot of talk about it. How we consume media is different, and I, I know that that's somewhat true but the truth is I still just love going to the movies like I don't know that I've changed that and I don't my kids aren't old enough so that I can really see how they've changed mm-hmm. but I still go to the movies on the weekend and they're packed you know mm-hmm. like I, I, I sometimes I feel like we're over we, there's a lot of hand-wringing involved but I still I just you can't replicate it it's not the same when you watch it at home on your TV it's just not so I, I love going to the theater I love feeling the crowd you know yeah you can't beat it, and I and it's not like I'm sitting there by myself in the theaters. So as long as there's other people like me that enjoy it, I think we'll be fine. As far as the business goes, though, I mean, how has that how has that changed things for the way that movies get made? I don't think it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they always try to tell me that it changes things, <laughs> but I, I found in Hollywood every year. I, I've been out here 20 years now. Every year has been the death knell of something or other, you know. And it, but the truth is, nothing really changes. It's all about good storytelling. We're just trying to make the best stuff we can and hopefully connect with an audience. So I think if anything changes, like you're not buying DVDs anymore, but it's now on your computer. That's that's different. I think from a business point of view, uh, that that revenue stream is a little smaller. But all right, that's what, this stuff changes, but it doesn't really change the main focus, which is it's our job to make product, and if people want to come see that product, then we'll, we'll stay in business. Mm-hmm. Are you afraid about anything in terms of the uh, the movie industry, or is does anything worry you or concern you? Not really. I mean, I feel like I just try to keep my. I, I feel like worrying about the things I can control, which is try to make work on movies that I love with people that I love, and that tends to go well. And that's kind of all I can control. And if you if you just focus on that, and if we all just focus on that out here, I think we'll be fine. 
Right, right. That sounds like something that some engineer at NASA might say as well. It's all about managing, like, the risk. It's all about managing the risk and then focusing on what you can do, you know? Like, yeah. I, I think that, you know, that is a sort of part of the teamwork. And when you, when you look at the way NASA and JPL, everyone has their task and they, they know it and concentrating on doing it as best as they possibly can and it tends to go well. Last question. Um, on Motherboard, we're doing um, a series uh, around Halloween about fear and and what's scary and sort of the science around that. I wondered, I guess, what you thought was um, maybe the way to create, like the way that you create fear in in a movie or in a scene. And what are some of the ingredients that go into that? Something that I was thinking of just... Um, Rewatching Cabin in the Woods was how much of a way that the fear is sort of related to to humor. Yeah, I, they are sort of uh, they're intertwined, aren't they? I mean, I always notice. Uh, we I had a film professor always talk about how when you know, the first time the alien burst through the chest and the first alien, you know, after the initial shock, the, the crowd burst into laughter because you just need this release. You need this release. Right. You're just so. You're so twisted up, and and I do think they they sort of go hand in hand. You sort of you want to feel unsafe, at least in, in movie terms. You, there's something about fear that is attractive, as long as you know that you know fundamentally you will be safe. And so you sort of you want to sort of step up to that edge, and then and then be released from it. It, it sort of happens over and over again. Right. Um, any tips on how to create fear within an audience when they're watching something? Yeah, I, I, I think you, you want to take situations that feel familiar so that people can empathize, you know? It, I, I tend to not get too scared if I, have no, if I have no bearing on what's happening, if it, right. if it doesn't feel like it's something that I can relate to. But it, and relating to something can be very simple. It can be as simple as, oh, I know what it's like to be on a walk in the woods at night by myself. It doesn't have to be incredibly complicated. But if you can just if you can put the audience in a familiar situation, then when you pull the rug out from them, it'll be doubly effective. Right. You have to care. <laughs> you have to care. Right. <laughs> so lesson I keep learning over and over. You have to care. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> this, is a, this is a pleasure. Thank you so much. This movie felt like. To me, it felt like an affirmation of what science is capable of, and I know there's sort of there's this there's this cheery optimism that that courses through the movie. But I think it's what makes it fun too is just watching people solve problems, and in that way, it was a lot like Apollo 13 to me, and 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 the way that um, you know we we did this impossible thing, we brought people back from a failed space mission, um, and. And of course, in real life, Apollo 13 ended up being a big, being a big hurdle in terms of drumming up support for future moon missions. Right. Um, I mean, you know, like yeah. what would happen in real life if we if if this if we left some dude on Mars and then we had to go back and get him and we rescued him, but at the cost of billions of dollars and. I mean, I feel like we saw this after Challenger. We saw this after Columbia. Right. You know, it's kind of like these space disasters set things back so far. And the people who are involved in space travel will say, you know, it's a risky job. Space is hard. That's the famous thing they like to say is space is hard. We have to keep going. You know, the astronauts know what they're up against. Uh, but at the same time, it's hard to convince, you know, 
Congress that when you blow up a $200 million vessel, and in this case, I'm sure it was billions of dollars to go back to Mars. And, you know, they he basically just he used up the, uh, you know, the escape vehicle right. for like the next mission. And yeah. like, you know, they basically destroyed the... Um, <laughs> The habitat. They destroyed the habitat, and they also destroyed the other uh, vehicle that got them to Mars because they had to blow it up to, like, right. you know, they blew, blew up the exit chamber. Which, yes, they saved this guy, and it was, you know, he got all sorts of science done on Mars while he was kind of there for three years. Like, you can probably study this guy forever. But I just imagine, like, how tedious this would be in real life. Like, Right, right. I mean, at the same well, time, take, though. Like, really long. It would take you more than a year, right? Like, how to- many... To, to what? the the whole thing, it's the rescue mission. Oh yeah, Was yeah. It... Well, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, like, how tedious, like the mar- like the hearings and like the budget appropriations and like the oh sure the future of all this stuff. Like, it would take forever, and like God even knows if it'd get done. There'd be you know people on the left saying like let's not do this and people on the right saying no let's right. like put money into you know this what? instead why are I we going disagree. to disagree i almost disagree because there's so rarely something that will sort of unite like yes. political forces but saving the life the of a hero like mars. the last like the man stranded on mars like right. who it's wants to story who wants to stand up and be the guy who says like let's let him die all right you know representative johansson from wyoming like you are not getting reelected. you just voted to like send him leave a man to his death i feel like everybody could ra- rally around this like technological feat and i thought it was like fairly realistic the way the film pictured that everybody watching the like the uh, the outcome like times square, times square. Yeah. Beijing too. yeah I got, the China's... I got a little chills too i'll yeah. admit yeah. yeah and so that's the question like would something like this derail our space program or would it would it empower it and and does this movie in general empower you know our vision of space and mars and science in in general i I don't know i i feel like the movie did a really good job yes of capturing an unadulterated yes it it captures the culture of science in a way that i think a lot of uh, big hollywood movies don't even try to you know usually the scientist is like this like extra character who comes in and has like the brilliant idea, right, like but pushes this... his glasses up his <laughs> right. his nose and like squints into the computer screen, and then he's gone. He's right. whisked away. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it does nothing but helps push us towards Mars. I mean, we talk about going to Mars all the time, but I can't think of any other like sci-fi movie that's about colonizing or even sending a, a manned mission there and you know doing it in a realistic way. Uh, you know. Whether this is totally realistic or not is besides the point. Yeah. It at least appears to be realistic, and it's probably the closest image we have. And to see, you know, a human walking on Mars and, yeah. like, surviving there and, you know, growing plants there. Like, yeah. you know, you see green on Mars, and it's just this amazing image. And I think that's – I mean, that was the point. That's what Elon Musk originally wanted to do with SpaceX was grow – send a greenhouse there just for the image alone. and. Obviously, this is fiction, but it's still a pretty impression. Right. It's a movie about farming. Yeah, (laughs) it is. (laughs) It is also... Actually, I can't take credit for this observation. I saw the movie with Adam Clark Estes, who's a Gizmodo writer, actually, and he... Former motherboarder. Former motherboarder. And he uh, he said that it was... That he had actually written a piece that I guess didn't actually end up running, but it was about how the the film was basically just like an infomercial for NASA. 
you know, NASA makes some missteps in the in the film, but in this age kind of where like most of the exciting things in space travel seem to be happening with SpaceX and private space companies, right. all the new launches, all Virgin. the new sort of technologies, reusable rockets, uh NASA remains sort of like our go-to, uh, you know, our, our, our go-to space behemoth, sort of the, it's the standard bearer, but it, this movie really kind of like turns and like gives NASA the credit for going to Mars. It says, it implies, it's implicit from the beginning of the movie, which starts sort of in media res, that it's not SpaceX that goes to Mars. It's not Virgin Galactic. It's not... It's not China's space program. It's still NASA that gets us there. Right. And NASA had a I think had a pretty big hand in making the movie or like at least helping with the the technical stuff. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that though, because in real life so many people will say that NASA has lost its way because, you know, we haven't been back to the moon. You know, we haven't we're not even going to the space station anymore. We're right. like leaving that to Russia. And you right. know, so what does it need? And so they're what does saying, it need? What does NASA need? It well, needs... they're saying it needs yeah. Mars. Everyone is every. That's kind of been, and it needs a huge PR boost. It, basically, it does. And um, you know, NASA will say that it's going to Mars, but you know, the timeline and the outline is so vague. It's like you know, in the 2030s, maybe with like after we go to this asteroid, and you know, you've got people like Buzz Aldrin mm-hmm. saying like go to mars now like yeah america needs it like mankind needs it that sort of thing and you know who knows if if at this point i would say that nasa and spacex have nine equal chance of going to mars but the fact that a private company could potentially like go to mars before let's, NASA be, let's is, be honest if they go it's to, insane yeah it it's is nuts it is nuts but it's also if we go to mars it's probably going to be like on a mission organized by NASA on a rocket built by SpaceX with maybe some funding, but from you know, Coca-Cola. right? right. <laughs> yeah. Or like but, Europe, and it'll yeah, probably Europe, be yeah, it'll be a joint. Maybe thing. it'll be a collaboration. I mean, we're and not even great. we're not even working with the Chinese space program now, and I thought that was an interesting aspect of the movie how China figured into the plot. Yeah. Um, so, also with gravity too, China plays a role in that as well right like she yeah, they fu- end up she, going over there she the, like gets into the chinese right. spacecraft yeah. so that's a nice nod to china which is a huge film market well uh, my memory is a little fuzzy but wait is it china or is it russia that causes the whole russia causes it russia. but in real life china caused one of those incidents where the satellites got hit Started by a missile collide. yeah 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 china notoriously has worked on like anti-sat technology and has tested it like creating a bunch of space junk right but it was russia that was the culprit in the movie yeah one one note of of uh of uh accuracy in in the martian um i i ran into an astronaut um mike massimino right after uh the screening and uh i asked him like just running into astronauts (laughs) left and right he's he's a he's a new york guy um i see him around the neighborhood sometimes um anyway he he was a, he was one of the astronauts Wait, your neighborhood uh i've seen him around williamsburg yeah. hipster astronaut yeah we didn't we run into him at the meatball shop that one time <laughs> we did <laughs> anyway so mike <laughs> mike was one of the guys who fixed the hubble space telescope the second time around and and his his issue with the film was that um for one, when you see the astronauts on Mars walking through the storm, which itself is an inaccuracy and could never happen, they are not tethered together. They're just sort of like walking 
right? Or are they no? Are that's, they that, yeah, they're just no, walking. they're just walking. That that right. basically needs to be the case for the entire movie to happen. Right, right. So if they in real life they'd be tethered. And the other thing is when you're flying outside of a spacecraft, like one of the astronauts is in the film, you're also tethered, and that and that didn't happen. But otherwise, I don't think he had any complaints about accuracy. Interesting. They yeah. were tethered. Uh, I believe in the book they become like untethered in in space like uh, when they got, when they get him they were tethered is what i was saying oh when they but, when they get him at the yeah, end yeah not in the not in the beginning no they weren't yeah. tethered in the beginning yeah. no there so was one I really ask you guys oh. Oh, go ahead oh the, one last thing is that there's a line in the film that's like a nod to real nerdy nasa lore which is um they call a uh what's his name um childish gambino donald glover donald glover <laughs> Sorry. They called Childish Gambino a steely-eyed missile man oh, at one yeah, point, which did. is like a, a term of affection in, in, the, in NASA culture. Where does it's it like, come from? I'm not sure what the derivation is, and I've looked it up, but basically like engineers who manage to do incredible sort of mission-saving maneuvers end up with the title steely-eyed missile men. Yeah. I will add that the design of the ship that they use to go out there which has kind of like you barely notice it in the in the movie because you get only a few establishing shots but it it looks like one of their classic sort of like toroidal cylinder shaped uh oh yeah like 2001 well yeah and it and it's and it was it's this like design that nasa came up with in the 60s and 70s to you know life-sustaining uh space stations and it you know the 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 it shit rotates in order to simulate gravity and it's kind of like what you would you know need to need to build to have like what they call like a generation ship so it's kind of like it's like i like that i liked it and i pointed out because it's kind of like an intermediary sort of sci-fi where in it, where you don't really think about it that much because this image has kind of sunk in through pop culture over the years it also showed up in interstellar briefly and it showed up in elysium and it's kind of becoming the go-to you know design for a ship so i wonder you know if and when we finally do build one of these ships that will be able to sustain people for years it'll kind of maybe look like that yeah gravity Mm. ship very cool i mean that's a very nice uh that'd be a very good thing to have for nasa for these long-term uh, missions yeah so uh did both of you guys read the book as well yeah no i didn't read it so what did you think in terms of it being a translation from book to to film brian great job yeah i mean i i think that no no offense to mr weir but i think the movie's better to be honest it brought it to life more it was more exciting um and and he Andy Weir himself has remarked that his prose isn't you know super remarkable. He it seems like he nerded out more on the research, and he notoriously spent you know a long long time digging into like the science behind this. I think he's a computer programmer by trade, or he was before he made nine thousand million dollars on this movie. Um, so I I mean I, I there's like a, maybe a few discrepancies that I can think of like plot wise but in terms of the pacing I totally agree with you that like the transition the translation was exacting. Yeah, I mean I thought the pacing was really good for book to movie. Um there were a few things I left out that, you know, obviously can't fit everything in. I would have liked to have seen the storm he got into, you know, in the crater. Yeah. Uh but yeah, I thought that the movie was better than the book, and I, I liked the book a lot. I enjoyed it, but I read it, and I was like, man, this guy had an amazing idea, and the science is super sound, and he writes like a seventh grader. <laughs> like, you know, like, 
uh, uh, welcome to the world of hard sci-fi, Jason. Right. Like, you know, Mark Watney is a pretty decent character, but every single other person in the book is basically right. like also figure. like yeah. Mark Watney or a stick figure, like yeah. not really developed. It's written in this diary form, which makes sense for the book, but is also like a way easier thing to pull off. Like my personal diary. Versus yeah. That's like, and that helps you know, the film too. The video diaries. The video diaries were great. But that's a great. Let's just say, yeah, it was a good, it was a good Good device. This is not like a great movie. It's not fantastic to the point where like the characters are are really like drawing you in. This is more like a roller coaster ride. Yeah, it's a ride. It's a lot of fun. Like Gravity was. I feel like the same with Gravity. Like, I mean, I guess Gravity had a little bit of the more of like her personal sort of, you know, backstory was kind of shining through. And when she survived that, she, you know, sort of like put to bed, whatever the trauma that was in her life before that. But in, in, in gravity, it's, yeah, it's just, you know, in the Martian, sorry. It's one thing after another. It does. It kind of feels like a, a theme park ride that, you know, the next challenge needs to be overcome and the music swells and he's in the rover and you're rooting for it. You know, you get a little adrenaline pulsing through your yeah. vein. And it's great. It was yeah. and it was really fun. And of course, it, I agree. It's not great. Like, look at Kristen Wiig and Donald Glover's characters were like kind of like crappy attempts at. You know, Kristen Wiig's especially I, like she was barely like she had like she four lines like there, maybe less yeah. like three lines I and, do have to say I've met a number of NASA flax and uh, I thought she did a pretty good job yeah yeah well I thought actually Je- Jeff Daniels did a good job as like a you know big big <laughs> Jeff NASA Daniels yeah <laughs> yeah he you know like that to me that was another one of the more interesting sort of side notes was like the depiction of like how they try to control the story right. and you know yeah. NASA's really tight-lipped you know as any reporter who's tried to deal with NASA before knows they really 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 sort of limit your access and you well, know not are, all the time I think sometimes they can well they be... give you tons of access or none to, right. Right. <laughs> to what they want and they you know they are very practiced and they're bigger guys well, they're a really... government agency yeah right i mean yeah. i think it's... i don't know i've dealt with a lot of government agencies nasa is always the most polished and the most cautious when it comes to big discoveries and yeah big, well yeah. so much of nasa's mission is pr i yeah. mean right yeah, like right, right. in a way that almost no other government agency is it's like making people care about space and especially making people care about things that are like light years away that really practically have no effect on you know our day-to-day lives did you Um, find the timing of the the mars uh announcement (laughs) suspicious at all not suspicious but fortunate i would say fortunate yeah yeah um, um but, well yeah I, I mean this is this movie it may win an oscar too but probably not for like best picture i wouldn't think but yeah it's like a it's a good blockbuster film it's not like high art i wouldn't say i i will say i can't remember the last time that it was like that much fun to just see a movie maybe gravity i was really glad that they didn't like try to stick some love story in there i mean they have like the two astronauts end up getting together, but it's really subtle and it's subtle in the book as well. And it's, it takes like two seconds, but like, you know, Mark Watney doesn't have to get home to his kid who right. is like, he is playing T-ball or something, you know? And it's like, <laughs> right. Well, we, we learn pretty much nothing about him yeah. as a person. We which, don't know about his like backstory where he comes from or anything, which is kind of nice. It's also part of the book too. Like they, these characters are not developed in any way, shape or form, right. which is like, it works, it works, but it's also like, Hey, it, it's, you're, yeah, it was a good point. That's why they, the actors 
for in the key roles, I feel like breathe life into them where they were yeah. kind of lifeless in the in the book. Can yeah. I say that Matt Damon was great? Matt I Damon thought. was great. He did a great job. Yeah. If it had been someone else, I think it would have been a lot harder to like connect with the character because he did so much in the yeah. scenes where he's just by himself. Yeah. And like where he cries. <sighs> Most of the supporting cast was great too. Yeah, I feel it was like a good cast. I yeah. I wanted to say about the about the book thing. I think it seems like a lot of Hollywood movies now, um, you know, they don't come from just published books. They're starting to come more and more from ebooks. Yeah. And this one was discovered, I think, by by the screenwriter. Someone sent it to him and and then he passed it along and then they were like, Oh, this is this is fantastic, like this is movie material and it's cheap. I mean you don't have to pay like a big publishing house to get this. I don't know because I think it actually was picked up by a big publishing house. Eventually, yeah. eventually, I think. I mean, it was a, yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting. Like you know, Jason said earlier, he this guy had a great idea. He just took it upon himself to write it. He had a day job. He published it on his he, blog. He published chapter it by chapter. on his blog, <laughs> and then into and then in an ebook. Yeah. And then it started selling like crazy. And then someone, I don't know, Simon and Schuster or something, like picked it up. Turned it into an even mega er blockbuster, and then all of a sudden it's like a movie starring like every single movie star that you know of yeah. our era, directed by Ridley Scott, who you know has directed some of the most seminal sci-fi movies ever. It's yeah. really I said it was like an inevitably like an in- inevitable success, but yeah, when you say that and you think about it, it's like this random first-time novelist like posted on his blog, like he was a blogger, he was, he a, was blogger, a blogger, yeah, yeah. and like. But at the same time, it's like, wow, the book was a screenplay already. Like, it's, I, which is smart. There are all these things that are like popping up to like, you know, even in nonfiction, there are entire startups where, you know. Oh yeah, like like the Silk Road one. What's, what's the name of the startup? Oh, the one that was the Wired Writers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Where it's the, they, they fund big budget journalism basically. And they have you structure it. So it'll make a movie. movie Yeah. Yeah. So the the website plans on, yeah, financing itself by, by, you know, winning movie deals and then like taking a portion of those proceeds. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's smart. Yeah. Um, so I mean I think we will see more of that, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever. That was uh that was fan fiction. It was, yeah. What was it fan fiction for? Twilight. Twilight, of course. That's right. <laughs> oh boy. All right. Do well, you have a you have a sci fi novel in your back pocket, Jason? I'm working on it, man. I'm gonna make a movie about drones, about FAA drone regulations. <laughs> wow. Pulled from my Sounds various riveting blog posts, yeah. Yeah. Starring um, Steve Buscemi. Yeah. All right. Any last thoughts on The Martian before we go, or on comments or on anything else? No. You should you should see it, and then you should go uh, tweet at Jason after you read his article, uh, instead of leaving a comment on the blog post. Yeah. No comments anymore. Yeah. You can email us though, Jason dot Kebler at vice dot com, yeah. editor at motherboard dot tv, and I believe our new comments section is letters at motherboard dot tv. That's right. Mm-hmm. I wonder what comments sections are going to be like by the time we actually start going to Mars. That's true. <laughs> Virtual reality They'll be chat just, rooms. Right. We won't even be like communicating verbally. Yeah. Just be, just be binary. Yeah. 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 
All right. Someday. I think you guys are a couple of steely-eyed missile men, by the way. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thanks, Alex. All right. I don't have any grand closing or anything. Well, so that would have worked if just, you didn't. Hone let's in just on wrap it. it up here. <laughs> let's just talk a little bit longer and then fade into nothing. Wait, did you finish your tweet, Brian? That's my computer. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.